The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. This podcast began with both Pete and I, two kindred souls with a passion for moving the recovery process forward. If you've started listening more recently, say since the beginning of 2022, you likely noticed that Pete is absent from conversations. This is because he had a rather unexpected and abrupt departure from this earthly plane. Pete's voice remains in the intro in reverence to and respect for his part of our joint vision for this project. Simply put, it wouldn't be where it is today, nor have a future without him. Now, on to another great conversation. I really like the component of doing priming and getting them established is that's what they should be doing before therapies. So when you're talking about across the continuum, we working in an inpatient setting, either subacute rehab or actually in an ERF or or LTAC as well, those individuals, um, the intent is to step down to a next level of care. Um, You wanna be making sure that those folks are doing that at each level of care. So that's definitely something that can be sustained across. So if it starts at one, it should be continued with the next. Welcome to part two of neuroplasticity with Duville University students, Morgan and Sarah and their professor, Tracy. In this episode, we talk about brain primers, mirror therapy, action observation, so much great information. I'm sure you're going to enjoy our chat. Refer to the show notes for relevant links related to the episode, as well as donation links, information on the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, Pete's book and blog, and other great information that we are happy to share with you. Enjoy. I'm wondering everybody's opinion on like combining the virtual reality technique with like a form of like electrical simulation of whatever up, like upper extremity, let's say is affected. Like using, like putting something like the Bioness on while you're doing virtual reality. Do you think that is something that would be useful or helpful? Just kind of like intermingling the two together. So it's just an added element of, of stimulation, I guess. Additional sensory input. Mm-hmm. Use of e-stim to address hemi-inattention as well. There's, mm-hmm. there's evidence for that. We can tell a funny story. If either of you are ever my therapist, if I ever have a neurologic event, please don't do vir- virtual reality with me because I have some serious vestibular issues. The like putting a VR headset on me literally like messes me up and it makes me sick. Yeah, I didn't like it either. Give me can't a do it. Can't oh. do it at all. 
Yeah, I'm a motion sensitive bird too, Morgan. Mm-hmm. So anything along those lines, I'm a mess. I can't do balance boards. I mean, if you ever invite me to a vestibular lab, you'll have a great time because you can you can elicit nystagmus with me. You can do all kinds of fun stuff. So keep things in mind. Mm-hmm. So what do you think about? Well, I was blown away when I put a virtual reality headset on. I could not believe what I was seeing and experiencing. It, it was unlike anything I had done before. I loved it. I think it was definitely something that I would use in the future. But I think that it is important that you mentioned that, Tracy, because that is so important that to make sure that those vestibular systems um, that someone doesn't have maybe an issue with those because that could, I could definitely see after having experienced that, how that could throw somebody off completely. And it yeah, that's it definitely an interesting component that that we really need to be making sure that we're aware of any contraindications and why it's so very important to have a thorough past medical history and um, any sort of use of any sort of CNS suppressant to address any sort of balance type, vertigo type situation may not necessarily, um, we may not get the, the benefits that we want from using something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's- yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Tracy, because I'm sensitive as well. And a lot of people are sensitive after they have a stroke. And so it might be best to try something like that with somebody who is well on the path to recovery, cognitively intact, able to try it a little bit and see what it feels like. I would definitely seek guidance from the doctor just to make sure and be very aware of their medications, any sort of seizure um, precautions, anything along those lines, I, that would not be something that I would be advising using. Yeah. I always like to check with the physician before I try a new intervention. And I think for people in outpatient rehab or people who are wanting, who are like farther out on their recovery living at home, I think before trying something new, it's best to check in with their physiatrist, with their neurologist before trying something new and specifically asking about contraindications. Because sometimes if you don't, like sometimes the doctor might just say, oh, that's a good idea, but not be thinking in terms of contraindications. Mm-hmm. So anytime yeah. that you can elicit a visual vestibular conflict, you, you want to make sure that, that you're aware and educating all involved with what that could actually cause, how they may actually feel. Yeah. So when we're talking about vestibular conflicts, we're actually talking about that inner ear system it's a, it's a different type of balance situation than a problem just due to weak muscles or lack of proprioceptive input or something like that. So it's, it's not a central nervous system issue. It's a peripheral nervous system issue. But again, we have to be making sure that we're very aware of how our clients present and what else they're bringing to the situation post their stroke because it's never a stroke. What does Pete say? You see two people with a stroke. You've seen two people with a, with a, with a stroke. Well, he says one, when you see a person with a stroke, you've seen one person with a one stroke. One person with a stroke. Yeah. No two stroke situations are exactly alike. And even if people have the same diagnosis in quotes, they're not going to have the same experience because everybody's body is individual. So going back to what you were saying about bringing in some e-STEM, there, there are those uh, brain-computer interface systems, and they, they're not virtual reality. So the OT, um, try that again. So Doro and Lynette from the NeuroHub in the Orlando, Florida area, they have the RecoverX system. And it involves mental imagery. It involves functional ESTEM, both limbs. It reorganizes the brain. So you have to have the correct thought in order to get the ESTEM 
to kick in. And you can't trick the program because they tried and they've had people try. You can't trick the program. So it's really effective at, at brain reorganization and also improving spasticity. They, ha they had a patient when I was there visiting them who had severe spasticity, chronic stroke, and within several sessions, the limb was already relaxing and there was some improvement in that spastic. Wow. What about, what about if a patient was like flaccid and we used, like I said, the bioness was used a ton in the hospital that I was in. And I'm just, in my mind, I'm thinking like if somebody has the virtual reality headset on and has the bioness going, it's like they're visualizing something happening with the use of their affected limb while the brain is experiencing that limb moving, you know, whether it's trying to make it move or it's just a reflex. Um, I feel like that would like combining the two is it, you know, an interesting, interesting way to, I guess, kind of re reorganize the structure of the brain and reteach it that like, you know, there's, there's still an arm there, you know, I, don't know, I think that would be interesting to see. That's a great question. And this is how interventions started and researched through good questions like that. Clinical reasoning and judgment would make it seem as though that would be possible, useful. Sounds like it does definitely need additional research or a further lit review on our part mm -hmm. to find out what else is out there first. Yeah, that just kind of popped into my brain upon conversation. I was like, oh, maybe I'll do some research afterwards. Well, that's what happens with these conversations makes your brain work. So we talked about visualization. We talked about visual feedback and that is an intervention. So that is called action observation. So watching videos of yourself, watching videos of another person, watching real time, people in real time, you know, watching the person walk down the hall is a form of action observation. So those are brain priming types of activities that people can do. And then I know before we, we recorded, we were going to look at some information on constraint-induced therapy and mirror visual feedback, which mirror visual feedback is also a brain primer. So where do you want to take this? Um, we can move into mirror therapy and then go into some constraint-induced movement therapy were um, two topics that I had touched on. Um, and I know Morgan's has uh, a few more. So the mirror therapy is something that was not as new be um, to myself um, because we've done it in school. We had done it in one of our labs. Um, and I think that was interesting to me. Hearing about it, it made sense. When we learned about it, like, oh, mirror therapy, you put the affected limb behind the mirror, the unaffected limb in front, you move the unaffected limb and watch yourself in the mirror and visualize this other, the affected limb doing the same movement. When we learned about this in class, it made sense. And then when we did it, I didn't realize, even though I wasn't putting an affected arm behind the mirror, I still was receiving feedback that was different than just seeing my arm normally do those motions. So I thought this was something that I would love to see in clinical field and in, in practice. I have not had the opportunity to do so yet, but I don't know if Morgan, had you done it in your time in clinical experience or did you not see it? Yeah, I did a little bit. So it was not um, an intervention technique that was commonly used in the facility that I was at, but we had it. So I remember asking my, my clinical instructor if I could try it because I'm also doing my research project on mirror therapy as well. So I was like, oh, you know, it'd be a perfect opportunity for me to try it out and see it firsthand and might help me with my research. Um, and I was doing it with one of my patients who was flaccid. Um, he had no movement. None at all, none whatsoever. And um, we did it for about a week. 
And basically what I had him doing was he put his blasted hand behind the mirror and was just performing certain movements with his unaffected hand and just like squeezing a ball or like, you know, flexing his wrist, like squeezing, you know, making a fist. And I told him each time that he was making movement, I was like, picture your other hand doing it. Like think about your other hand doing it. And he said he was receiving feedback and he was like, wow, it really feels like I'm moving my arm. And it was cool um, to see, you know, to get that feedback from him. Cause like, you know, you read about it in textbooks enough, but to do it and to receive the feedback from the patient, it was very interesting to see. Unfortunately, that patient ended up getting discharged like a week after we started the program. So I wasn't able to do too much after that with him, but for the like week or so that I did um, work with him on it, it was definitely eye-opening. So one of the things that I think is really important with mirror therapy is if a person is cognitively attacked and they're able to follow directions, I think that we should be setting them up in their room with a mirror and supplies and start right away when we start working with them, get them using that mirror, make sure they don't have any questions about it, you know, when they're with you and then set them up in their room, instruct them to do it a couple times a day, because it really does work best if it's done at least five days a week for 20 minutes, twice a day. And why not start doing it in their room when they're with you, they can ask you questions when they spend time with you during their treatment sessions and then hook them up with a mirror before they leave and give them supplies or tell them a list of supplies and things that they can use at home, or even talk to them in the clinic, find out what items do you have at home that we can use to get you doing certain movements. And I like to keep it interesting. So I think, you know, therapy cubes in the clinic, but most people have Jenga game or dominoes at home. And you can do some stacking and find some interesting activities so that it's not as boring as it could be and get them going with that and make that their home program that they're discharged with. I really like the component of doing priming and getting them established is that's what they should be doing before therapies. So when you're talking about across the continuum, we working in an inpatient setting, either subacute rehab or actually in an ERF or or LTAC as well, those individuals, um, the intent is to step down to a next level of care. Um, You wanna be making sure that those folks are doing that at each level of care. So that's definitely something that can be sustained across. So if it starts at one, it should be continued with the next. So if you could even build the mirror with them in therapy, and then they would have it to take to wherever they, if they step down to another inpatient facility or if they go home, then the families could be carrying over with that as well. Yeah, and it's really not, it's not that difficult and it's not that expensive to obtain something like that. That's why I think caregivers in particular are a huge stakeholder with um, your therapy program because you know, it's as simple as taking a cardboard box and slapping a mirror on it, like gluing it or taping it or whatever you gotta do. And then you have it. And if that can be, you know, that can act as a home exercise program like that and a bunch of, a number of other things too. Morgan, I love that you identified the caregivers because I was, I wanted to dial it back a little bit, but the discussion about action observation, we kind of just sort of glossed over it a little bit, but think about all the opportunities when family members are visiting someone in an inpatient situation that they could actually go visit somewhere, actually move them to a different part of the facility where they could also be observing people doing things while they're visiting. So take them out of that, you know, take them out of their, their room where they're, where they're a patient and in that patient role, maybe get them down to the coffee shop or get them down sitting in front of the gift shop so they can see, they, they can see others engaged in activity. Yes, I I like that point, Tracy, because I think sometimes we get in our heads that an individual post-stroke, it's limited, maybe limited to certain things that they can do, or they're in the hospital, they're in the hospital bed, and they're going to be there until they get discharged. And that's 
not always the case, right? Like they can get out of that bed. And in many cases, it's beneficial to go and observe other people doing activities that they either previously had done or would like to get back to doing. And I wanted to just go back quickly before I forget to something Deborah had said. When you talked about when the mirror therapy, bringing it home, and that individual can do a task at home that maybe isn't as boring, but more meaningful. Did you mean something like having them complete a puzzle in front of the mirror? Would that be an activity? I don't know if I would do a puzzle in front of a mirror, and here's why. So my research for my master's project was all on constraint-induced therapy. Well, it turns out that that didn't go the way I wanted it to. So I created this whole lesson, neuroplasticity in action. And one of the activities that I have people do was do mazes in the mirror with their non-dominant hand. It's very hard. And the purpose of that was to demonstrate neuroplasticity, but I actually did that presentation in the community and somebody threw their pencil across the room. So because of the perceptual component in the mirror, I wouldn't do a puzzle, but I love how you're thinking about this. I have a mirror therapy program and some of the activities that I recommend are folding laundry, like folding towels or folding a washcloth. I have stacking cubes for a fine motor. I have pouring. You can pour rice from bowl to bowl to get that supination and pronation in there. Those are things that you can do in front of a mirror without really messing with yourself perceptually. And it still looks like the other limb is doing it. So that's what I would caution people to be careful with the activities to make sure that they are doable and that it looks like the other limb is actually doing it. I've done sculpting also. Oh, talk about that. So like using um, TheraPutty as a sculpting medium, because that's the same thing. You're looking at the image of the non-affected hand. So whatever that hand is then doing has to be something that the brain would not identify in reverse. So that's why sculpting makes sense. So you're going to be just doing shapes, things such as that. You can start out with hot dogs and you can go, you know, work on pinch and all of that. But working on sculpting is also something that is, takes longer. And that's the other thing when you're thinking about mirror visual feedback, because you want activities that are in duration. So, you know, flip, you can't do cards either because you have the opposite image in the mirror. So you can't have anything that's going to basically tell the brain it's not correct. Well, if you're using cards as a basic pronation, supination, flipping thing where they're not looking at the cards, you can. But I agree. You can't have them like reading. Reading won't work. You can flip pages of a magazine because it looks like you're flipping, but you can't have them read them, or try to organize something. And before we move on from this, I would like to commend you, Morgan, for asking to bring out the mirror and do some mirror therapy with that person. And hopefully you got your fieldwork educator thinking a little bit about using that as an intervention. I mean, it just puzzles me so much why people aren't using it. Um, I know that a lot of people want to understand it more. And so that is definitely something that can get in the way of people using it. So I do think that those student presentations on any intervention that people are not really using in their clinical setting are good for students to present on, like action observation, the mental imagery, mirror therapy. Yeah, I definitely think it's something that should be in every clinic, you know, because I mean, it, it was available and we had a couple of them, but I had not seen them used by anybody else. And I didn't even know we had them until I, I asked my CI. She's like, oh, yeah, they're in the back. I'm like, OK, <laughs> can I use it? <laughs> yeah. And taking students is beneficial to the student as well as to the fieldwork educator. So that's also something because individuals take students 
to learn the latest and greatest and to reinvigorate what they're doing in their repertoire because it is a job, as Deb said. So they're looking for that additional information and that, what I always say, the gift. Like if you're, as a student, what are you going to leave with them? So these are all wonderful thoughts for the students listening to this, to this podcast. So think about it. Your presence there is really a gift to the, to the fieldwork educator, as well as to the building. So that, you know, what you do there for that 12 weeks doesn't end at those 12 weeks. No, it sure doesn't. And I just want to throw this out there too. I know that some people hesitate to take students because they're afraid they won't know the answers to all the questions that students have. And we don't have to know all the answers. We can learn about these things together. So really making that fieldwork educator student more of a collaborate collaboration, a collaborative relationship, a partnership. And like, it seems like everything's changing right now where we're moving away from the authoritarian medical model. I'm the boss doctor. I'm the rehab professional. And you need to listen to me as the patient to more of a patient or a client practitioner collaboration. The same thing for fieldwork educators and students. I love having students. I just think that students bring such a fresh way of thinking about things and they're learning what is new and upcoming in the research and they're eager to apply it and practice. And so gives us all the opportunity to, to try together. Yeah. Grow and to learn. I could, I couldn't imagine what my practice would be like if I didn't do any continuing education outside of, of, you know, obviously going on and being, choosing to be an instructor, but I couldn't imagine what 25 years ago knowledge, if I kept doing what I did 25 years ago. Yeah, there were a couple, there were um, a couple of times where my CI didn't really, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with like stroke, but we had a patient who was amputee and she wasn't like up to date with like the current, like how to, you know, do stump wrapping. And I was like, oh, I got you. And so I basically taught her. <laughs> and it was kind of funny because she that's was awesome. Like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's like, show me. Yeah. yeah. And you're going to have so many experiences as, as practitioners that, I mean, to this day, I still, at least weekly, there'll be a diagnosis and I'll be like, I have no idea what that is. You know, and we all make jokes about it. Now we're like, Oh, teach us. Mm-hmm. Like somebody will say, do you know what that is? And we'll all be like, no, teach us. What is it? Exactly. It's a very wide world out there. It is. I think uh, speaking to the students that may be listening to this podcast as well, we just had a discussion in class the other day about using evidence-based practice during our fieldwork rotations. And because we are researching while we're at school, even on our clinical practice, we are continuing our research projects. So we are learning the new ways to look for research. We may be finding new things and we could show our fieldwork educators that we could help them search for evidence-based articles out there. And not only that, but we may have the time to do that while we're in our fieldwork. They could give us that as a task to do, and that could help them. If they want to research an area more, we could help them do that. And so I think that's an important thing to know going into a fieldwork is that that's a huge area that we could offer because I think going into fieldwork a little bit, it's intimidating a little bit. Morgan, I don't, maybe you felt the same way, but I was a little intimidated going in. You know, you don't know what to expect. Um, you, you want to pass and um, do all of these great things. And you kind of forget what can you offer? What can you, like was said before, what can you leave after those 12 weeks? And I think that's an area that is not only needed, but it's something that all students going into their field work can offer. Well said. Yes. So have we said everything we'd like to say about mirror therapy? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Do we want to talk about constraint-induced yeah. therapy? Or do you have something else? Um, I don't know, Morgan. I can speak on that if you wanted to, too. I know Morgan had a couple other ones to talk about as well that we haven't gotten to. So, Yeah. 
Um, sure. Yeah, I can go. The one that I wanted to talk to, like talk about the most was weight bearing and how important weight bearing is, especially in um, like the acute and inpatient setting for a patient who has flaccid or um, spastic shoulder or arm or whatever it is. Because we're le- we learn in school, like, and you read in all the textbooks that like weight bearing is good for both flaccid and spastic, but like, you don't really get a grasp on what that is like by reading it from a textbook, which is why it's so important when you go on clinical, because you see things that and experience things that you've only like just pictured in your head and it's completely different. So like feeling a flaccid arm and feeling a spastic arm is nothing like you would possibly imagine until you experience it the first time. You're like, wow, this is crazy. I had one patient in particular, I'm a strong person and I couldn't lift his arm to 90 degrees. He was so spastic. And I was like, how am I going to do anything with this, with this arm? You know, it can't even, I can't even lift it. Well, my CI was like, why don't you have him press some weight on it and try to break up some of that spasticity? And so we did that. He had poor sitting balance and everything. So I had to like kind of support him in the back. And I was able to like help him like facilitate that weight bearing. And I definitely think it made a difference because even at the end of the session into like the next day, he was able to, you know, bring his arm up a little bit higher. So just like that one, like, you know, hour long session of doing some weight bearing activities and some weight shift and crossing midline and things like that. It's crazy how like amazing, like the brain can change so instantly because of something like as simple as weight bearing. I think that with weight bearing, people don't always think about the proprioceptive input that a person gets through weight bearing through a limb and sending the signals to the brain that those joints are there and giving the proprioceptors in the joints the opportunity to engage. Very important point to think about also is the positioning bed positioning. I mean, when we're not with them, are we carrying over, making sure that what is safe, how can we improve input into the affected side? How can we do it safely? So obviously protection of the shoulder, depending on what's going on with the level of tone, like making sure that they're properly positioned pillows for skin integrity, all kinds of things to keep in mind when someone has experienced a neurologic event. So there's opportunities for that increased proprioceptive input when we're not around because the individual should not always be supine on their back. Mm -hmm. And I remember that brings up a good point because I remember listening in one of the podcasts, I believe it was the one um, that's called measuring spasticity where Deb, you were talking about arm troughs and lap trays and how if somebody is extremely spastic, it's not, (laughs) yeah, exactly. It's not often feasible because their shoulder is so hiked. And I had that experience. That was such a, like an interesting thing to see and kind of a challenge for me. How am I going to position this person's arm in a way that's not, you know, completely just irrational? Cause I would put his arm in an arm trough and it would end up just like falling out or I would put it in a lap tray and he didn't have, you know, the intrinsic musculature to keep himself upright. So he would end up just like falling over to the side you know, pillows worked, but they would fall and he, you know, didn't realize and everything. So the, the conclusion that we came to was putting him in a sling and kind of keeping his arm here. But I remember Deb, again, you were talking about how that's probably not even the right choice too, if you wanted to touch on that a little bit. I don't like slings particularly. I don't like a lot of things. I don't like anything that's going to restrict a person from being able to use that limb at all. And I don't know, there's, I don't think there's a lot of evidence out there that says that slings are the best. And so I tend to not use them. I don't like arm troughs because a lot of them are hard plastic and they can cause skin breakdown, especially when there is that spasticity and the arm doesn't just stay where you put it. But we also don't want to cause shoulder damage. So like that hiking of the shoulder that can happen, we don't want to cause a problem that a person doesn't have. Uh, Tracy, what's your take on slings? Slings for protection during mobility. 
And that's not necessarily for the therapists. That's when we're working with other members of the staff as well. Because oftentimes I'm protecting and holding the affected arm during transfers. But I can't guarantee that other individuals who would be transferring someone are going to do that. So slings for protection. I don't like arm troughs. In fact, I never use them. We haven't even discussed about attention, but if anyone has decreased attention, you may as well put that arm in a different state. Yeah. Because as soon as you've taken it and put it all the way to the side in an arm trough, it's not there anymore. One of the things that I'm always known for saying to my clients who have had a stroke is you got to bring your affected side to the party. So no matter what they're doing, wherever that party's happening, if the party's happening at the sink, the arms are both up on the sink. If the party's happening at the bedside table, both arms are up on the bedside table. Even if it's, they're using it as a stabilizer. So that's my take on it. I've never really, there have been several slings that I've trialed over my years. My concern is avoiding future damage. And that's when that decision comes in as to what I'm going to recommend. Yeah. Yeah, I think bringing it into like the the protection standpoint, I don't know if like having him in a sling is going to do anything for him. It's not going to change anything. It's not going to fix the problem. It might even make it worse, but just protection when mobility, like when these patients would go to physical therapy and work on uh, mobility and gait and stuff, they would put them in you know, in a sling just to protect that arm that, you know, isn't in use at the moment. So, Gracie, I like what you were saying about positioning and bringing awareness to that affected side when we aren't with them. And another point that's important to remember is the learned non-use factor. That sets in right after somebody has a stroke. And so anything that we can do to remind people that they have that limb and encourage them to use it as they're able to, not a constraint-induced protocol immediately following stroke, but not letting them, when they're under our care at least, not letting them ignore that limb and bringing it in, bringing it to the party. I love that as part of their life. Especially when you're acute, in the acute settings that we're talking about, acute, post-acute care, that's all crucial. Dogs. (laughs) Of course, when you're making a good point. So just to segue, just a a little bit minor into constraint-induced movement therapy, the importance then of that type of therapy. And and just a a quick little summary of what that is, constraining the non-affected side in order to use the affected side in tasks. So um, I I know sometimes it's a long title. So in my head, it was when I first learned it, it, I kept going back and forth. But I think just like we said, just to reiterate the importance of using that affected side in doing that constraint-induced movement types of therapy. I think that type of therapy is uh, good for, you know, I think the purpose of it is to avoid that learned non-use that Deb was talking about because that just, I feel like, defeats the purpose. Just like forcing, forcing the movement, forcing the use of that hand, you know, as they're able to. Constraint-induced is definitely not new. I mean, that's definitely something that's been out for decades now. So I've seen wonderful gains down the road as well, but you really, it's the commitment factor. And that's something from an education to the client, as well as to the caregivers, what's really involved when you're, when you're making those suggestions. So it goes back to practice makes progress. So for, for the people to understand that you're not going to see it right away and it's going to be frustrating, but you also have to tell them we're only making these recommendations because you already this far on your road to recovery, you are already capable of doing the motions that are required for constraint induced. So the people need to to understand that it's appropriate for where they're at in their recovery and that it's meant to be challenging. 
because that's what you need to do at this point. You need to challenge them. I feel like I unintentionally used constraint induced like every day in the clinic, like just unintentionally, unofficially. It was like, no, stop using your good hand. And they would always just, you know, go to use their good hand. It's like, well, I think one of the factors that makes constraint induced therapy or a modified constraint induced therapy program, that program is the amount of time and the number of repetitions that a person is actually putting in to that, which is why it's really important not to do during that acute phase, because you can actually cause more damage in the brain, make that brain injury worse if they use it too much. So that is one important aspect that the research has shown us that there is a time to start this and it is not in the acute phase. And there's a great article that I want to bring up because I'm actually participating in a continuing education study group on constraint-induced therapy because there are some people who want to start using a modified program in their outpatient clinics. And it's kind of hard to sort through the literature and know exactly what to bring into a program And something that we have all deciphered is the way that we think as clinicians is sometimes different than what our clients are thinking. And I think that we have a propensity to think that people are not willing to put that in, but there are some people who are willing to put that time and effort into a recovery program. And so that would be who the program is for. But this article that I want to tell you about and that I will put a link to, at least the title into the show notes, is called, What are the Ingredients of Modified Constraint-Induced Therapy? An Evidence-Based Review, Recipe, and Recommendations. And this is by Dr. Page, Sean Bow, and Peter Levine. This was back in 2013. This article is anything you need if you want to start a modified constraint-induced therapy program in your clinic. And one of the things that I heard Dr. Taub say on the Brain Science podcast was the reason why they had such great success with their constraint-induced therapy programs was the transfer package. And that is the home program. And they had a check-in process with people. They followed up with their clients and they ensured that they understood, the clients understood that they had to do that piece. And if they weren't willing to do that piece then they just weren't appropriate for participation in their program. And I think in looking at the research, like there are certain things that set constraint-induced therapy apart from forced-use therapy. And the shaping process, which is what we do naturally as occupational therapy practitioners, we we analyze the activity and the abilities of the person, and we find actions that they're able to do, and then we provide them with activities that promote actions for goals that they have, but that provide that just right challenge and we're constantly grading that activity to make a gradual increase in the challenge so that they always have something to work towards. So I think that's a piece that sets it apart as well as the transfer package or the home program. So another part that makes this appropriate for OT practitioner to engage their clients in is using the motor activity log and the COPM, the Canadian Occupational Performance Measure, because we guide people through selecting the goals that they want. A lot of times people don't know. They think they have a goal, but they can't always articulate it. And so we use our strategies using those assessment tools and the tracking. The motor activity log is used as a tracking 
system. And then we're working very closely with people to see how are they using that limb? Are they using that limb? And making modifications as we go along. It's, it's an intensive process. It's an effective process, though, because the outcomes last. Heavily relies on timing and then obviously participation and buy-in in the client and the caregivers. Because sometimes it takes setup on the caregiver's part as well. So it's making sure that we're addressing and we're meeting the needs of those caregivers and not further adding to their already varied caregiving schedule than what they had before their loved one had an event. Truth, Tracy. And this is the second time you brought this up and made me think about the conversation we had with another group of the Duville students about the caregiver burden and the caregiver partnership. So when caregivers are working in partnership with the survivor, it's a relationship that is effective. It helps actually the care partner and the survivor. And so taking that into consideration, it can be a way to meaningfully involve a care partner. Because I think a lot of times people want to help their loved one, but they don't know what to do. And if we as OT practitioners aren't too busy to include them in the recovery process and help them find a role, a meaningful role that is not burdensome for them and that works for both them and the survivor, I I think that that's a huge piece of what we as occupational therapy practitioners can bring to the table. I think it can just increase also that individual who experienced that stroke, their motivation to continue with their therapy and what they need to do if they have someone there that feels that they can help them or plays a role, an important role, and that person is motivated. I think that translates more often than not. That's true. And what about bringing in friends, you know, including other social supports beyond the care partner? I think any, any added support system is helpful. I think especially for people, you know, they could receive all of the help that they can get, all of the support that they can get, and they probably need it from not only their family members, but people, their, you know, their best friends, people that they you know, they know the most and that know them the most because, you know, it's easy to say, you know, this therapist at, or my doctor at the hospital, you know, they don't really know me like my family does. They feel like having that added level of support and somebody who like gets them can really help them through it. Yes. And I think it also, if we incorporated not only family members, they may be going back home to see their family members and living with them and seeing them day to day. But those activities that they were doing prior to the stroke, see going out with friends, maybe activities with friends, clubs, groups, that may not be a thing anymore. And how do we incorporate that back into their life? How do we incorporate that aspect? Because then they can be more motivated and see themselves more in the role that they used to play. And a little bit differently, like we had said before, imagine yourself, you're, you're creating a new self in some ways, but you could still have those roles. You could still be a member of an organization you were a part of or a club, or maybe that's school. Maybe it could be whatever that was previously. So I think not only including those family members, but including friends, maybe even just colleagues and giving them a role in this individual's life now, a meaningful one. Many of the interventions that we've discussed could definitely continue and occur in those situations, both leisure, co-occupations, and it gives support to the caregiver and, again, addresses return to roles, and we all know how important that is. And I think about friends of survivors. You know, We who work in healthcare 
especially if we work with people who've had strokes, it becomes not scary to us because it's that's what we do. We've learned to accommodate to that. But it's frightening to see your loved one not the same as they were before. So I envision us helping those social supports, all of those people, a part of their social circle, feeling more comfortable interacting with the survivor. So this is that post-post-acute setting, Deb, that you and I have wonderful conversations about. Like what happens when the individuals are no longer under what we would consider traditional rehabilitation? There's a whole life after rehabilitation ends. Yes. And people's needs, they still have needs just because insurance, traditional care drops off doesn't mean that the needs drop off. And that coming from a student perspective, an idea just popped in my head for students that are listening that maybe need an idea for a program to do for a class in the future. After uh, traditional therapy, like a program to help individuals be incorporated back into those activities that they were doing prior and how to also bring in those friends and those outside parties and, you know, how do we develop that? I, I don't know what that may look like, but coming from a student, that could be a good, a good project. And that would be interesting to see. Sounds like a stroke support group mm-hmm. from a community aspect. Needs a better name though. It does need a better name. I mean, really I let you down. I'm sorry. You have. Come on. <laughs> I came up via the possible venue. How does that sound? <laughs> I love that you're thinking about that as a student project, mm-hmm. Sarah. I think about, I think if um, anybody listening to this podcast has any type of an entrepreneurial spirit, we give ideas all the time. So there, there is not. Talk about our value. Oh value of for an OT department right there. Yeah. Reaching out to the community for those who did receive care. Yeah. Fabulous. It really is. I think there was some equipment that you guys brought. I know we're coming up on two hours here of a great conversation, but there was equipment that you had us look at. Yes. Can we talk about the mobile arm supports? The the deltoid assist is the one that I used the most, also known as the Swedish sling. And that one. That just brings me right back. Me too, Deb. I'm right right in the clinic with you. I know where you are. (laughs) It's green. Right in the clinic with you. Mm -hmm. Yep. And somebody fixed one of those slings too. Do you guys like the Swedish sling? I don't want to, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. <laughs> You're not going to say the wrong thing. I and, like and, it. And as an aside, mm-hmm. Morgan, um, we just purchased one for school. Oh, good. That's awesome. Good. Yeah, they, um, they were, there was only two of them, I think, in the clinic there and people would fight over them because. Only two. That sounds like. A lot to me. Two more than most clinics I'm aware of. I was just going to say the last time I ever was able to work with one was when I worked with you, Tracy. Mm -hmm. And that was a long time ago. So basically, if people don't know what it is, it's an overhead pulley system that provides the passive support for the affected upper extremity. It allows the arm to be supported with a variable amount of effort from the patient based on weight. So it's a pulley system that is attached to weights. So if a patient has a certain amount of movement that they're able to do on their own, yes, thank you, Tracy. <laughs> um, you can add more Tracy, weight. Tracy's uh, demonstrating for us, yes. <laughs> providing a visual demonstration. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a good activity for bilateral use of the upper extremities. So the way that I used it the most with a patient who was blessed was I would harness their affected upper extremity to like a baseball bat or something like a plastic baseball bat 
and have them with the other, with their um, unaffected extremity guide themselves through certain motions. So it was kind of, like I said, bilateral use of the upper extremities in order to facilitate certain movements with the affected extremity. That was just one way I used it. Use it with self-feeding. Yeah, I never did it with that. I was never, I was never able yeah, to. We, uh, self-feeding was always very satisfying for the, for the clients because mm-hmm. the fatigue factor is always such an issue. So yeah, I never really did it with any type of like functional activities. I basically just did it for exercising and putting themselves through motions. I would have um, given the goal of like taking that into the baseball bat and like punching certain items off of a table into a bucket. So like it's facilitating or, or like have them raise it up as high as they can. Just different activities. I, w- I was kind of like spitballing ideas out as I was going. Certain things worked, certain things didn't. Um, but it was actually one of my favorite pieces of equipment to use in the clinic. Surprisingly enough, with all of like the electronics that we had there, that was one of my favorites to use. I'm a big fan. One of the things that I want to caution about with a flaccid limb is to only use a pulley device with your practitioner present because we have to protect Mm -hmm. the shoulder and those overhead pulleys that go over the door. No, never. I will say that forever and ever and ever. And I don't like those, but using the deltoid assist in the presence of your therapist is a very safe intervention. Yeah, I enjoyed using that one. I think the patients did too, because it gave them an element of like competitiveness because I would like kind of hold my hand up. And I was like, I want you to touch baseball bat to my hand and I'll go higher and higher and higher each time. I think they surprised themselves with how high they could get their arms to raise. That's nice. Think about the awareness that you're bringing to that limb with mm-hmm. that activity. So even though it wasn't a functional activity, you still made it interesting. Give them a goal. Mm-hmm. They were engaged. Yeah. They were aware of that limb. They were aware of that side of their body, especially if they had to knock something off. And that's an opportunity to do something that you know they're not going to be doing without you. I guess bringing an element of fun into it too. Cause like you said earlier, sometimes it gets boring, you know, so let's make this challenging for you. Yeah. Yeah. Always bring in the fun. Absolutely. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? This was amazing. Mm-hmm. I think we touched on the majority of my content that I prepared. About the, about the main ones. Yeah, same. I think um, we touched on all of the notes, basically everything that Margaret and I had um, prepared before today. Wow. So if we're going to wind it down, I wonder if there would be one point that you would make as a point of encouragement to the survivor, the care partner, both. What would that be? I think going back to what I said earlier, like it's okay to get discouraged, but always like bring it back to the bottom line is that you are a survivor. And if you can survive a stroke, you can recover from a stroke. It just takes practice and it takes time and commitment. And you are a lot more capable than you may think in your times of discouragement. And I agree with Morgan um, a little bit. And going back to something I had said in the beginning, where practice makes progress. And I know we've mentioned that multiple times throughout this, but I think remembering that and really what it means and that every little thing you do is progress towards the larger goal. And nothing that is worth it is easy. And with everything we're trying to improve, there's going to be struggle. And that just means that we're getting stronger in that area and getting better. I love those tips. Mm -hmm. As the survivor, return to your valued roles. 
you are still a brother or a sister, a mother or a father, an aunt or an uncle, or a friend, a coworker. Identify and return to those valued roles. Wow. Thank you for all this wisdom. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. Thank you for having us on. It was great. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and, spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.